Good morning. My name is Tommy Allen, and I am the pastor of New Hope Presbyterian Church in Kent, Washington, and we are glad you are here. First thing I'll say this morning is happy Father's Day. No, I don't know about you, but I've had a pretty good Father's Day so far. Uh, I got a kitten. She's a little cockeyed, but she's awesome. Um, afterward, we'll probably, um, after this service, we'll probably have lunch about six feet away at my kitchen table, and then after that, We'll probably do like play a game at the table about six feet away from me. And then after the game and stuff, we'll probably like make a puzzle or something at the table about six feet away from me. You can put in the comments all the fun things you're doing for Father's Day, if anything. Um, but welcome. We're glad you're here. If you're a member of New Hope or an attender, just a quick uh, session update. Session or elders run our church. We had a meeting a week ago. And what we're where we are now, we're in phase two. It just happened. Uh, with regard to the coronavirus. And what we're now is basically in the process of gathering leaders. So when, when we get to phase three, we can start out actually having home meetings and things like that. So you'll hear more about it, of course. Um, so we're as we enter into this time, it isn't a worship service, obviously, but we have elements. And so this morning, I thought we would begin by confessing our sin. You should find the confession of sin in the, the comments section or above it. And basically, I'll read through that and if you want to pause, you can um, to confess your sin silently, and then I will continue. So let's confess our sin together. Father, forsake not your children, lest we fall by the hand of the enemy. Shepherd, forsake not your lambs, lest we wander away from the safety of the fold. Forsake us not in our joys, lest they absorb our hearts. Forsake us not in our sorrow, lest we murmur against you. Forsake us not, for without you we are weak, but with you we are strong. Forsake us not, for our paths are dangerous and full of snares, and we cannot do without your guidance. So if we were in church, I'd ask you to take a moment to confess your sins silently. If you'd like to pause, you can as well. But I will continue on and say this, that if you have confessed your sins unto Christ, he is faithful and just to forgive them, and he will never, ever hold them against you. So I say, know that you are forgiven, and be at peace. Amen and amen. And so as we turn to the, our text today, let me, um, I'm going to read it and then I'm going to pray and then we'll, we'll jump in. So today's text, we're in this second to the last sermon as we finish this series on the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm going to be talking a little bit about verses 13 and 14 today of Matthew chapter 7, but really the main text is verses, starting at verse 15 of chapter 7. So hear the word of God. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Let's pray. Father, I pray as we enter into this time of teaching that you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that you would bring um, solace, maybe for those who, who are suffering. I pray that you would bring comfort to the afflicted, I pray that your word would be effective 
uh, in bringing us both to justification if we have not trusted Christ and to sanctification growing in our faith even now be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking in Jesus name we pray these things amen and amen so this morning I'm going to begin with a question um, it's a question if you go to our church you've heard me a couple times a year I'll probably bring it up and the question is this is if you were self-deceived do you think you'd know it think about that for a second if you were self-deceived, you think you'd know it. And the obvious answer, I hope, would be no. You, you would. How could you know? Because you're self-deceived. Now, there, there, there are a lot of ramifications for that. We're often, all of us are self-deceived at one level or another all the time. And I, you, you can know that because one of the, one of the great. Um, quotes that I think Tim Keller has, has given the church over the years, and one of my favorites is just this. He says, he always says that five years from now, you are going to look back at yourself and say, man, I was really an idiot back then. And if five years you are going to look back at yourself and say, I was an idiot back then, what does that mean about you now? Right? <laughs> that you're probably self-deceived about some position you hold or some something that you believe with, with maybe even with great zeal. Um, and so many of us are, are self-deceived, all of us at some level. And then, of course, we are deceived by other people. The, what, what's the only remedy for deception? Being either self-deceived or someone else deceiving us. And the, the remedy is just this. We need someone to tell us the truth. Someone who we trust, someone who can intervene, someone who actually knows what is true. And if you consider the whole Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is doing is it's, you can almost consider it to be an intervention, right? We, by nature and by choice, are self-deceived and we're deceived by others. And Jesus enters in with the Sermon on the Mount and tells us the truth. He tells us the truth about us. He tells us the truth about himself. And since we're coming to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, I thought I would sort of uh, give you a brief overview because it sort of culminates with what we're talking about today in many ways. Up to this point, the whole Sermon on the Mount has been built around three imperatives that are either implicit or explicit imperatives. And the three imperatives are these. The first imperative is this, is be perfect. Remember, Jesus started teaching the Sermon on the Mount and, and um, chapter five, he basically said that you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless your righteousness exceeds the scribe, that of the scribes and the Pharisees, right? And those were the guys who knew everything about the law. Those were the guys who, who understood everything. And those were the guys who outwardly were obedient. I mean, remember the apostle Paul said when it came to outward obedience to the law, he was blameless. So, so apparently outwardly you could do it. The righteousness that Jesus that would exceed theirs was righteousness that was actually inward, that came from inside of us, not just righteousness that we showed to the world. And Jesus then began to talk about things like that, things like murder and things like lust and things like divorce and reconciliation and retaliation. And he culminated that section, he said, with loving your neighbor. And then he said, now be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. And we talked about that, everyone listen about that. Perfect also means complete. In other words, if you want to really be completely obedient to the law of God, if you want to love like God loves, love your neighbor as yourself. So we then go, the second imperative is this. He said, be perfect. And then after that, he said, be careful, which makes sense because if you hear Jesus say, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect, you, you're you going to want to like watch how you're living your life, right? 
Jesus immediately basically says, be careful. Don't do your righteousness in order to be seen by others. And he talks about giving, and he talks about prayer, and he talks about fasting, and basically said, those things are important, but if you do them in order to be seen by others, and instead of rather to be seen by God, all that makes you is a hypocrite. And so he goes from be perfect to be careful, and then this week, he says, basically, beware. Beware, beware of what? I'm gonna say beware of scams, particularly religious scams. I'm going to explain that. What is, what is a scam for the sake of discussion? A scam is basically where um, anyone is it's some, either a person or an ideology that's trying to deceive you, that's trying to gain from deceiving you. And it's amazing when you start to think about our own lives without even reference to the Bible, our own lives are riddled with people trying to deceive us and scam us. I looked up this week from the Federal Trade Commission, just scams. And as of June 11th, just scams having to do with the coronavirus in the United States, the Federal Trade Commission has received 91,808 complaints, Nine, almost 100,000 complaints about scams related to the coronavirus. And that's just people who take the time to go and complain. And almost $60 million has been lost. Just regard with regard to coronavirus what other scams if you're interested if you go to that website it'll have coronavirus it'll say other scams then there are other scams that are currently going on in the united states involving cars charity credit debt relief door-to-door -door scams education scams energy scams fake check scams foreclosure scams free trial scams funeral scams going into business scams health scams identity theft and immigration investment jobs lottery scams money transfers mortgages mystery shoppers online dating scams phishing phone fraud shopping travel weight loss and working from home that's on top of coronavirus so scams are, are a big thing scams were a big thing in jesus day and scams were a big thing coming from uh, religious leaders and so that's what jesus addresses today we're going to talk about in today's text we're going to uh, basically look at three things we're going to look at um, two gates, uh, two different trees, and two different people. So it's all twos that Jesus has used here. Two gates, two trees, and two people. And I'm going to talk about last week's text a little bit as we talk about the two gates because it's important as part of this one. And so for the two gates, let me read to you verses 13 and 14 again. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So we talked about gates last week, and what if you remember, basically these gates are not ends, they're means to an end. And the end, the, the, the means to the end, that the, the end is life, that you're going to get life one way or another, or at least some kind of life by entering one of these gates or the other. And if you remember, uh, the narrow gate leads to life. The, the broad or the wide gate leads ultimately to destruction. And I thought it would be helpful to consider maybe a different angle on the, this, these gates today. And basically, if you consider what these gates have in common is also helpful. Now, what do these gates have in common? And the answer is this, that the, both gates, what they have in common, it is that entering both gates means for you certain death. Both gates, the narrow gate, and the wide gate. 
What do I mean by that? Well, basically, at the narrow gate, when you think about the narrow gate, you die, but you die before you enter. Right? In, in other words, you have to, to enter the narrow gate, you have to die to self-righteousness, you have to die to your own sin, you have to die to your own self, you have to die to your own rights. Before you enter the narrow gate, remember I talked about last week that it, it's so narrow that you, you can't even wear clothes getting through. The only way you can squeeze through is to be completely naked. And so you have to die, basically, before you enter the narrow gate. And it's helpful, I think, if you consider the narrow gate to be like a funnel, right? And you're entering through the small end of the funnel. And so you, you, know, you, you cast off everything that you have. You enter through the narrow gate. And once you get through the narrow gate, life starts becoming infinitely wide. Now contrast that to the death that happens with the wide gate, right? The wide gate leads ultimately to destruction. The wide gate, you basically, you, you die after you enter. And the wide gate, you, you die, you enter the funnel from the wide end and you live your life and you don't, you don't have much consideration. And as you go forward and forward and forward, it gets narrower and narrower and narrower until at the very end of your life, you have to be naked and go through that small end of the funnel. And then you pop out the other side and there you are naked. But now instead of having life, you've ended up in this place that leads to destruction. Now you are naked and afraid, I would imagine. Um, so the question is, what is the narrow gate? How do I enter? And the, the simple answer is this, it's Jesus. Jesus says over and over in the New Testament that I am the gate, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. If you want to enter into life, Jesus would say, you must enter through him. He is the gate. It's through faith in him that we are saved. Now, and the thing is that Jesus is, is humble, but he's not modest. And what I mean by that is that basically other teachers, other religious teachers would teach what? That there are many ways to God, or they would teach that what God requires of you is that you be good. And the better you are, the better your chances of entering into life after death. And Jesus doesn't say that. Instead of, of where, where other teachers would say there are many ways and you know the, the, all, being good is all that matters, Jesus would come and say, I am the way and I am the one that matters. In other words, Jesus is the gate through which we must enter if we are going to have life. And the, the scam, if you will, of bad religion is going to teach us anything but that, basically. The scam of bad religion says that what matters is your works. If, if you want to be saved from your sins, you must present to God good works at the end of your life, or you must present to God something. And this, that, that's the scam, the deception of religion, because you think you can somehow please God on the basis of your own works. And what Jesus says, nope, enter through me, enter through my works, and enter into life. And so Jesus doesn't claim to just be another rabbi who teaches us how to find God. Jesus actually teaches us that he is God, who became a rabbi who came to find us. That's different than any other religion. So the two gates, you got to enter through the right gate, Jesus says. And then he talks about two trees, right? The, what are the two trees? He says in verse 15, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by your fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Only a healthy, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, and can a diseased tree bear good fruit? Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. 
So Jesus is talking here about prophets specifically and about false prophets, right? The Greek word he uses there is literally pseudo prophetes, which is basically pseudo means fake or false prophets. And Jesus says, beware of false prophets. And basically, if you look at the Bible, um, what we know about prophets, you know, in Deuteronomy 18, I believe there's a, there's a list of things how you can test a prophet. But the bottom line for a, of what a prophet is or what a prophet does is a prophet speaks for God, a prophet tells you the truth, and it's important, a prophet, generally speaking, has a hard life. And, or a prophet, generally speaking, often has a miserable life. And the reason is, is because they're telling things people things they don't want to hear. But I think that's actually important as, as a characteristic. When you look through the Bible, most of the prophets didn't have real cushy lives. Um, now, what do false prophets do? False prophets claim to speak for God. And what's interesting is they may be a true prophet. They may, be, they, they may speak the truth, or they may be speaking lies. But oftentimes, false prophets, they tend to have... Um, easy lives. They tend to have lives that are sort of characterized by lots of financial gain. In other words, they're using the truth or they're using the, the lies for that matter in order to actually gain from people. And that, that that's their motive. Jesus has verse 15. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, right? They look good, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. They actually are desiring to get something from you. Right? Where a true prophet would be desiring to serve you, desiring to tell you maybe the hard truth, even if you don't like it, where a false prophet is actually hoping that to, to get some kind of gain from what, however he or she talks to you. What are they teaching? On one hand, we don't know. Right? We, I mean, there have been dissertations written about this, I'm sure. Um, but I think it's safe to say, given this context, that they're teaching something other than what Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Right? If, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, it's, it's pretty hard teaching. My guess is they're teaching something else, or they're teaching there, there's some way to bypass Jesus to, to have a relationship with God. And Jesus basically says, you, here's how you can tell a false prophet. Here's how you tell who's legit, who's, who's not legit. And the answer is actually pretty simple. Because Jesus says you'll know them by the fruits. Just, just look at the fruit they produce. And so what... How does that work itself out? Well, basically, the one way to look at their fruits is how does fruit manifest itself in the life of their followers, right? Are their followers characterized by, by being loving and joyful and free and things like that? Or are their, do their followers feel guilty? Do their, do their followers feel like uh, shame all the time? And one of the things that's interesting here is that, um, remember James chapter 3, verse 1 says, not many of you should, should want to be teachers because teachers will face a harder judgment. So whatever they're teaching, if you look at their, their followers, do their followers just feel guilty and ashamed all the time? And I know some of you have experienced that over the course of your lives, right? You've gone to church and you say, oh man, I went to church and all I felt was guilt and shame and that kind of thing. Now on one hand, it might you might've felt guilty because you are guilty, right? So that's back. On the other hand, um, if that's all you ever heard and never heard that Jesus came to save you from your sins free and clear, then what you heard was not just not true. And I'm sorry about that. The other way to tell if a prophet is a false prophet or, or to look at their fruit is what do their own lives look like, right? And, and remember Galatians chapter five, I'll read that to you, verses 22 and 23, very famous passage. Paul says the fruit of the spirit. He says the fruit of the spirit 
is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So in other words, when you look at a false prophet, when he teaches or she teaches, um, is their life characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control, or is it not? In the past few years, there have been a lot of, of pastors of major, huge churches who have had to resign because at some point their leadership called them on the fact that while they were preaching great sermons, their lives didn't match up to that. I mean, all of us sin, pastors sin. I know that surprises you about me, but I do sometimes. Um, but that's one thing. It's another thing to be characterized by being domineering or forceful or harmful or abusive. And basically, you look at the life of the, the person and you can know. Basically, the, the, what characterizes a false prophet is they are good at putting on a show. They write great sermons. They write books. And basically, they become Dr. Fox, right? When I was in seminary, one of the scariest classes I ever had was by our Christian ed professor, and he told us a story of Dr. Fox. And basically, there are several university studies. The first one, I think, was in California, where they brought in, the, the researchers brought an actor to give a presentation to medical doctors and PhDs in biology, and it was about some kind of, of bogus topic but what he was to do is he was to act really enthusiastic about his topic and he was to just sell whatever he was saying. And at the end of it, they asked medical doctors and PhDs to grade Dr. Fox, that was the, the, a made up name, on his pre, both his presentation and his content. And they gave him A's on his presentation. Of course, he's an actor, but they also gave him A's on his content. And it was intentionally bogus. And in other words, the moral of the story is, is if the presentation is good, you just assume that the content is there. And the reason our professor told us about that is he said, some of you guys will think you're knocking it out of the park with your churches when in fact you're just Dr. Fox. And that reminded, reminded me then of what Charles Spurgeon said in, in his book, Lectures to Our Students, right? He, he started a, a preaching college and he told his students one time, he said, some of you will preach your whole lives and at the end of your lives, you will die and your congregations will be anxiously anxious to receive you in hell because you did not preach to them the truth. You made your congregations feel good. You made yourself feel good. You were deceived. They were deceived, right? So this is super important. Look at the life of the prophet to see what the fruit is. And that will help you understand whether or not what he or she is saying is true. And the bottom line is this, a good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. How serious is it? Jesus says in verse 19, he says, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, right? That's a metaphor for hell. That's a metaphor for, for judgment. That's a metaphor for destruction. That's how important Jesus says this tree is and the, the fruit that is produced. And what's ironic here is false prophets not only deceive others, but they also deceive themselves, right? In other words, at least that's what Spurgeon was getting at. Spurgeon would say, a lot of you guys think you're preaching the truth and think you're knocking out of the park when in fact you're deceiving yourself. And so to that end, Jesus also talks then about two different kinds of people. And so 
what are the two kinds of people? Notice verse 21. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So what's interesting, first of all, Jesus, when Jesus says not everyone um, who says to me, Lord, Lord, do you see what Jesus did there? It was subtle, but it was enormous. Jesus didn't say at the end of time, when, every, when people come before the judgment seat of, of God and, and he says, give an account for yourself, they will say, Lord God Almighty, I did this and that and the other thing. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. In, in other words, he's placing himself in the judgment seat of God. That Jesus, this sort of out-of-work carpenter with a side hustle as a rabbi, is actually saying, someday all of you will stand in front of me. And not everyone, some, but not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And what two kinds of people is he talking about? So, so he says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord. So there are some that say, Lord, Lord, that will enter the kingdom of heaven. So the two kinds of people Jesus is referencing here are just this. The first time, or the, there are two kinds, one who enters the kingdom, one does not. What's the difference? The first one is this, is the first kind of person comes before Jesus on judgment day and says, Lord, Lord, and means it. As simple as that. They mean it. They meant it. And if you look back at their life, their whole life will have been characterized by the fact that they trusted Jesus by faith, that their hearts were changed, and as a result of the work of the gospel in their heart, as a result of being changed by the Holy Spirit, they produced fruit. Now, that's, that's one kind. They come before Jesus and, and say, Lord, Lord, and they meant it their whole lives. Maybe not perfectly, maybe not even all the time, but, but as a general rule, that is what characterized them. The other type of person comes before him and they say, Lord, Lord, but it's clear that they never relied on him, but in fact, they were relying on their resume. And it, it's interesting. Um, we know this because when Jesus calls them out, right? He says, on that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, he said, some will not enter. And he says, on that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? When Jesus calls them out, they actually don't respond by saying, but Jesus, you promised that if anyone calls to you, you would save them. Or Jesus, you promised if we just trusted in you by faith, you would save us. No, instead, when Jesus calls them out, they actually pull out their resume. Right? And, they, and they, they, in some ways, it's not even a humble resume. Right? It's like, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? Right? They were probably the greatest works. They are probably the best works. Probably no one ever did works like I've done before. Right? Um, they're not even humble about what they bring before Jesus. And Jesus, on the other hand, is not impressed by the resume. And can I be honest with you? Right? Can we talk? Jesus isn't impressed with your resume either. Many people watching this video right now have spent their whole lives hoping that people don't catch them, like hope they don't really see what's really deep inside and in the darkness that dwells there or the demons that they grapple with or the sins that they have committed. And you know what? The good news of the gospel is Jesus came to take care of all of that. 
that your resume doesn't matter. In fact, I wonder sometimes, you notice that the things that, the, that these false prophets, but that these people pulled out on their resume, none of the things that they listed were things that are even listed in the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, he did, they didn't say, but Lord, we were gentle and kind and loving and patient and good. They didn't. They were, they were, it was all about, look at these big things we had done. And I think there's a lesson for, for all of us. I mean, I was thinking this morning, you know, this, this week, you know, I've been working at the church off and on during the week. And um, there's been, been a homeless kid that hangs around the church. And at some point, you know, I've got tired of, I mean, just telling him, okay, we can't do this, we can't do that. And at some point, I just brought him in, into the church, sat him down. Talked to him about getting his GED. I said, if you're going to have a decent life, you need to, you know, do all these things. And we set him up with a place to live, and we set him up with all these things. And afterward, and, and none of you guys would have known that, right? And I'm only telling you that by way of il illustration. No one would have known that. No one needs to know that. But I wondered after if those are the kinds of things that no one sees that if, if Jesus is going to pull out any kind of list at the end of the age, is it going to be these big things that we did so people can see? Or it's going to be all these little acts of kindness and all these little acts of grace that we showed to people. Is that, who, is, is that what you're building into your life or is it not what we're building into your life? Because you're a big resume, not impressive. How do we end here? Jesus tells them the worst possible thing I think that any person could hear. So Jesus has set himself up as Lord of the universe. He is the one who sits on the judgment seat and what Jesus says to these people that come before him and say, did we not prophesy? Did we not heal? Did we not do this? Jesus doesn't say, depart and go to hell. Depart and suffer everlasting damnation for your whole life. I mean, we think about that sometimes. And Jesus talks about hell a lot. But what Jesus says here is the worst possible thing you could ever hear from him is this. Depart from me. Depart from me. You see, if Jesus really is God, if he really is the one who is the lover of your soul, the one who can heal you, the one who will love you and never cast you out, if you would just trust him, put your faith in him, uh, what worse thing could there possibly be than say, you know what, your whole life you've wanted to be apart from me. Now you can have that. Depart from me. I never knew you. And why is that so bad? It's basically that it's because Christianity isn't about following rules. Christianity isn't about building a resume. Christianity is about a relationship. And if you think about your own life, what are the things that hurt you the most in your life? Is it when you didn't get a good grade on a test is it, you know, or, or something like that? Typically, it's relationships, and it's broken relationships. And right now, in and of ourselves, we have a broken relationship with God that's fixed through the person and work of Jesus. And I was thinking, trying to think of examples this morning. I remember when I was a kid and you go to summer camp. What's the hardest thing about summer camp, right? In Florida, the hardest thing about summer camp is it's hot, that there's bugs, the food is horrible, the mattresses are ratty, all these kinds of things. But what's the hardest? The hardest part is being away from your family, right? You just miss your family. If you've ever been in the military, what's the hardest part of basic training? At least for me and most of the people I knew, the hardest part of basic training wasn't the road marching or the, the, the discipline or people yelling at you. The hardest part was not having any of my friends or family there. Now you make friends and family there, but that's different. I remember when I was in the army, I used to spend every night with my, my sheets over my head and the flashlight writing letters to my friend. And lots of my friends wrote letters back. That made the difference for, for the whole basic training for me. I mean, basically the end of it, the day, what 
is important in Christianity is that God is concerned about, he, he doesn't want your resume, he wants your heart. And he doesn't want your resume, he wants to have a relationship with you. And the question is, do you have a relationship with the God of the universe through this person, Jesus, who came and but the life you should have lived, died the death you should have died, and rose again in order to make sure that not only are you uh, becoming more and more the way you're supposed to be, but that all creation will ultimately be redeemed. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray this morning that you would come, and if, if anyone that is listening now has not um, considered the claims of Jesus and the fact that he is the gate, and if anyone else here listening has come to rely on their resume, I pray that you give those things up, and they would experience the freedom of entering through the narrow gate with nothing and opening in, up into the wideness of the life that you offer. pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Typically, at the end of each service at church, at this point, we would sing the doxology and we would take an offertory. And surely, uh, since even though we have to do everything virtually now, we sell bills and that kind of thing. If you're a supporter of New Hope or you'd like to start supporting New Hope, you can find the information, I assume, down there someplace. Um, to close out our time together, we've been typically using a profession of faith. And I thought, since it was Father's Day, I would use a profession of faith from the Heidelberg Catechism, Heidelberg Catechism question number 26, that's about God our Father, what we believe about him. And so it's referencing the Apostles' Creed, right? In the Apostles' Creed, when we say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And so the question is this, in question 26, if you want to follow along, you can. If you want to speak it out loud with me, feel free. So the question is, what do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? And the answer is this, answer, that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them, who still upholds and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence, is my God and Father because of Christ the Son. I trust so much that I do not doubt he will provide whatever I need for body and soul, and he will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends upon me in this sad world. Do you really believe that? And then the last line, God is able to do this because he's almighty God. He desires to do this because he is a faithful father. Amen. Let me send you with these words from the prophet Zephaniah. The prophet Zephaniah said, The Lord your God is with you. The Lord your God is a mighty and victorious warrior, and the Lord your God will quiet you with his love, and the Lord your God shouts over you with great shouts of joy. Go in peace. Amen. Amen.